1970, Paul McCartney, of course, of the Beatles fame, penned the famous words, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Now, it's possible, being that McCartney was in an altered state of mind most of 1969 and 1970, that he may have actually believed that in his times of darkness, Mother Mary was standing right in front of him, saying, let it be. However, it's much more likely that this is just a poetic, kind of neo-Bohemian way of saying what Bob Marley would later say in 1977, don't worry about a thing, every little thing's going to be all right. Just let it happen to you. The question is, what do you, ha what do, you do in your times of trouble? Certainly, you have them. If you have not had them yet, you simply have not lived long enough, as the saying goes. The suggestion of Paul McCartney's song is just sit back and let the trouble take place. In your time of darkness, nothing can be done by you, so let's just let it wash over you. You're helpless. You're powerless to affect the outcome of your trouble, so just let it be. I don't find this comforting. Ironically, he's actually right. Uh, if Mary was to tell you something, which she can't, she would tell you do nothing because there's nothing she can do to affect the outcome of your life. In our past two Sunday sermons, Isaiah has been teaching us how those who love the Lord have exclusive access to legitimate anchored hope and to genuine settled peace. Hope means that we recognize that God holds our future, and peace means that we understand he is guarding us in the present. Hope and peace are both available to the believer at all times, but they are not automatic at any time. At the center of your Christian experience lies this very simple yet fundamental question, do you trust God? Do you really trust God? It's a very easy thing to answer this question, this question quickly and say, well, of course I trust God. I, I trust God. I do. I trust him. But when your carefully constructed world begins to shake and you find yourself answering that question in real time, sometimes it's much more difficult to say, yes, I trust him. Peter thought that he trusted the Lord, so much so that he stepped outside of a boat onto the waves, walking on the water with the Lord, but when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he noticed the waves and the driving winds, it's then that he began to sink. And he could see that Jesus was in control of the sea. Obviously, Jesus is walking on the water. He controls nature. What he is doing is absolutely outside of the realm of human possibility. And not only can Jesus do that, but Jesus had already given Peter the ability to do that. Jesus was sharing in his supernatural activity with somebody who on his own would naturally drown. But even while he was experiencing the power of the Lord in his body, a little bit of water was enough to fill him with fear and doubt. And this is why Jesus asked Peter after rescuing him from those waves, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? If you were just looking at me, of course you would not be doubting. For the remainder of August, we're going to set our attention on King Hezekiah. Now, his reign is the central focus of chapters 36 through 39, and in these four chapters, we're going to see the Lord testing the faith of the king. This week, we're going to see the conclusion of the, the Assyrian attacks against Israel, 
and how God allowed Hezekiah and the nation to be tested so that their faith might grow stronger. And next week, we're going to see how the fight hits a little bit closer to home as, I, as Hezekiah suffers from an illness and must trust the Lord when he is suffering physically and personally. Now, I cannot think of any more appropriate time in my entire ministry to set our attention on prioritizing trust in the Lord in the midst of national instability and physical illness. We must trust the Lord. These trials that we are experiencing in our circumstances today are saying something about you. The way that you respond to trials is a declaration of trust. Trust in something. The question is, what or who are you trusting? Let's pray now and ask the Lord to enlighten our minds as we study his word. Father God, we come before you asking that As we watch Hezekiah display peace and hope because of his rooted trust, that you would cause us to understand what it looks like to trust you. Help us, Lord, to delight in your son and to see that regardless of what is taking place around us, we have a firm foundation. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to delight in Jesus and see that he is the ultimate king, the ultimate savior, the ultimate redeemer, and the ultimate judge. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, because of the length of our text this morning, we're not going to be setting our attention on every word of these two chapters, 36 and 37. Rather, we are going to break them up into three scenes that I hope will serve as a helpful outline to you. First, we're going to consider the trouble, then we will consider the trust, and finally, we will look at the termination. So if you have not already, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. We begin by taking stock of the very weighty situation at hand. Hezekiah has found himself in times of trouble. So please follow along in your own copy of scriptures, Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, as you've probably already observed, this is not a friendly visit from a group of people up north. This was a war council. This was a very common courtesy in the rules of war to inform your enemy, hey, by the way, um, you look great today. I want to let you know we're coming for you. You're about to die. We are going to attack with all forces that we have behind us right here. So what you're about to see on full display is the pride of Assyria as they threaten the people of God. And you're going to notice that in this first encounter, King Sennacherib is nowhere to be seen. Rather, he sends someone that he's going to call in this text the Rabshakeh. Now, what is a Rabshakeh? A Rabshakeh is simply a vizier. That's another word we would probably use for it. If you want to think of who this guy is and what kind of power he would hold, just think of Aladdin's Jafar, right? This guy is the real-life Jafar. He is powerful. He has the ear of the most powerful man in the world. He is the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the entire globe at that time. This guy is a big deal in their world. And so this guy comes forth with his title and with his army to call out the people of God. Verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, 
On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, so far, everything he has said is factually accurate. The case that has being, is being built here by the Rabshakeh against Hezekiah is seemingly verifiable. Remember, Pastor Mike taught weeks ago that Hezekiah did seek help from Egypt. Their great historical enemy, the ones who enslaved them for four centuries. They said, hey, by the way, we need your assistance against the Assyrians instead of trusting in the Lord. And God had warned them not to do that. And of course, Sennacherib is looking at them and saying, guys, you're trusting the wrong thing. Egypt will fail you. And he is right. But now you see the declaration take a decidedly theological turn. Verse seven, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now here he's not exactly right. He was looking at the landscape of Judah and saying, look at all these hilltops where there's removed altars. Weren't those altars to your God? What he doesn't understand here is that Hezekiah had honored God by the removal of idols and false places of worship. These high places in the land of Judah were places of great idolatry. And now that Hezekiah has removed them, it has actually emboldened the Assyrians to come and take the land. Why? Well, it's important for this story that we understand this piece of history. We must understand the mind of these ancient peoples to get what he's saying here. They had a territorial view of the gods. So by putting up a pillar here and a stack of stones there, you were announcing this hill is the new boundary line of our God. And the farther you place them, the greater power our God has. So they perceived that the centralization of worship in Jerusalem was a retreat of God to one isolated place. So do you see what these emissaries are doing? They are trying to get the ranking officials of Judah to turn on the king. Do you see this satanic reasoning at play? He says, look, your God has failed you. He restricted you. He said, just worship me in this one location. And by doing so, he has allowed us to waltz in here and take every other city in your country. And they were unprotected by any God. Your God has made you weak, they are saying. He has put you in danger, they are saying. Do not trust your God, they are saying. Pastor Steve did a great job in his sermon this past Wednesday, speaking about Satan. And one of the things that he hammered home was the reality that the devil's tactics really don't change that much. And one of the ways that the church is at greatest risk in these dark days is by hearing wicked and satanic counsel like these guys are bringing to Hezekiah. Don't you see that failure to get in line with the sexual revolution is going to hold you back, they will say? Don't you see that younger people are never going to come to your church as long as you teach these biblical commands, as long as you keep standing on this literal truth that you call the scripture? Don't you trust God's word, don't trust God's word, they say. Trust society to tell you the right move because this is not safety. Society provides safety. What about the compromise in your house in terms of the things you watch 
how are you supposed to relate to your coworkers unless you know the details of that show that has all that nudity in it? You will hear justifying arguments in your own ears from your own mind, like these emissaries saying to you, God's regulations are too stringent. Oh, you can handle that. You can watch that without any kind of effect on your soul. Don't trust God. Trust the culture. Now, we could go on and on with varieties of ways that the culture and society and your job and your own mind will lie to you and seek to get you to compromise by lacking trust in God. That is always Satan's tactic. Did God really say? But now we arrive at one of the most interesting verses in the chapter. Look down to verse 10. Remember, this was a message that was either written down or memorized from King Sennacherib and was being delivered for the sake of King Hezekiah and his people. Verse 10 says, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Do you see what Sennacherib is saying? He is speaking about Judah's God, about Jehovah God. It seems as though God has revealed himself in some way to this pagan king and told him, hey, get up and go fight and destroy those people. As Pastor Mike preached about, this was God setting the stage in order to judge both Judah and Assyria in one fell swoop. The Rabshakeh was not content to keep the conversation confined within the war council. So what you'll see over the next several verses is that he begins shouting these things in the language of the people of Judah so that everyone on Judah's side could be told, if you just give up now and come with us and follow us, you'll be treated well and you'll have deliverance from Sennacherib. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be, uh, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah convince you. The king can't save you. Your God can't deliver you. Only I, only me, only Sennacherib can deliver you. This is an anti-Exodus sermon. Just stop trusting in the Lord your God. Stop trusting in him because he is too weak and too impotent to actually defend you. It is impossible for him to deliver you, they say. Look how Sennacherib categorizes God. He puts him alongside all of the other deities of the lands that he has conquered. See verse 18. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shephavrim? Are they delivered, uh, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Can any God stand against me? Your God is just like that one and that one and that one and that one. And the world is preaching the same message to Christians right now. God is dead, they will say. He has no power, they will say. King Science and his army of rationalists have killed him, they will say. But like Sennacherib, the enemies of God in our cultural moment have declared victory far too soon. It was no small thing to have a great army like this breathing down the necks of God's people. It was no small thing to have this great army in the service of the most powerful king in the world threatening their national existence. This was a big deal, striking fear into the hearts of many. These indeed were times of trouble. 
But the question is, how will Hezekiah respond? Point number two, trust. We transition here into chapter 37, and as we do, I want you to notice the three evidences that are present where we can see Hezekiah's trust on full display. First, he goes into the house of the Lord seeking godly counsel. Verse 1, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now, when bad news is dropped into your lap and your life gets complicated and difficult and filled with sorrow, is this your first inclination to go to church? Is that the first thing that you desire to do? Now, I've noticed an alarming trend in Christians, Christians that I know, Christians even part of this church, there's a tendency that when you get bad news, you decide to stay home away from the people of God in order to grieve or in order to be caught in some kind of trouble and avoid church because you want your life to get straightened out first or because you're just really sad and you don't want to go to church and let people see that you're really sad. Rather, you want them to think of you always with a smile on your face so you don't go. Do you feel that pull? I feel that pull. I can tell you this is not a you problem. This is a we problem. This is an us problem. People naturally don't do this unless they are trusting that there is something that is worthwhile here for us. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Hezekiah was right to go into the house of the Lord. He was right to go and not allow his worship to be interrupted. His circumstances had no ability to stop his dedication to the Lord in worship. Now, of course, you might note that our life is different because in Hezekiah's day, this is where you went to worship. But God's worship, worship of God is no longer confined to a physical building or specific location. Now we can worship God from the safety of our own bedroom. But I want you to see that the, the house of God was a place of corporate worship, which is where we find great value. This church building is not the house of God, like it's referred to here. However, whenever the congregation of Jesus followers have covenanted together and gather for worship, that becomes a house of worship. Whenever we gather with one another, there is something significant taking place. There is nothing supernatural or super spiritual about this building. As much as I am thankful for the fact that we can gather in this building with the climate controlled electricity projector lights, I'm thankful for those things. They are just material things. Nothing supernatural, nothing super spiritual. But there is something supernatural and there is something super spiritual about believers who are currently worshiping here. The fact that you are doing something by gathering with one another, declaring who God is, is a significant thing according to the word of God. So when you find yourselves in times of trouble, don't just let it be. Take your troubles with you to church. Secondly, I want you to notice that Hezekiah seeks godly counsel. One of the most famous proverbs is, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. But the question is, how in the world are you supposed to avoid leaning on your own understanding? That is your understanding. How in the world are you supposed to separate that from your own mind? Even if you recognize that your thinking is flawed and that your reasoning is flimsy and that your wisdom is on vacation, what are you supposed to do about it? Well, if your own understanding is suspect, then no amount of contemplation or pros and cons lists can guarantee an outcome of a straight path. 
For that you need something else. The answer is found, in part, in seeking godly counsel. Consider verses 2 and 3. And he, Hezekiah, sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, which by the way is King Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Let me ask the question, what, what is godly counsel? What do I mean when I say that you should seek godly counsel? Godly counsel is quite simply just counsel that is in alignment with the word of God, with the word God has already spoken. Isaiah, being a prophet, said, thus says the Lord, and then declared what was about to take place. And he spoke directly from heaven what Hezekiah needed to hear. And God promised that Sennacherib was going to end up back in his own hometown, where he was then going to die by the sword. Now, as a side note, when God refers to the Rabshakeh and his minions here, I think it's hilarious. The, the wording uh, where he calls them young men is not just a reference to their age. It's actually an insult. The word that he uses for young men there is an insult to call a grown man because it implies insignificance, incompetence, ignorance, and even foolishness. And he says, Isaiah says, the Lord says, uh, those young men, those incompetent people, those fools that are here, don't worry about them, of the second most powerful man in the world. Now you might say, there is no prophet today who can do for me what Isaiah did. There is nobody who I can go to who will just hear the voice of God immediately and share that with me like Isaiah did for Hezekiah. And on the one hand, I'm glad you would say that because you would be absolutely right. There is nobody that you could go to who could do that for you today. There are no modern day prophets like Isaiah. But on the other hand, you do have the whole revealed counsel of God right here in your laps. Do you go to it? Do you see it? Do you read it? Do you actually seek God's word to tell you how to live? Now, you need somebody who's going to console you, yes, who's going to comfort your emotions in times of trouble. But if you go to someone who does that without pointing to the word, you to the word of God, they have failed you. The Pharisees did this often for people. They were in times of trouble, and they would tell them what to do. The problem is, Jesus calls them blind guides because they were telling people where to go without actually knowing where to go. They were ignorant and leading by their ignorance. The blind leading the blind, Jesus says. Now, if you are only hearing the counsel of your colleagues or you're only hearing the counsel of your culture, then you're never going to find truth. You're never going to find help in times of trouble. If you need help, I can tell you the elders of our church stand ready to help you and serve you. Your community group is a great place to share your times of trouble where you can discuss what the Lord would have you do and how you can pursue the right steps 
to honor him. Your brothers and sisters that are members with you in this body are called to bear your burdens with you. Let them do it. So when you find yourself in times of trouble, seek counsel from believers who will point you to the word of God. In verses 8 through 13, Hezekiah is sent a letter from King Sennacherib, and it's basically a reiteration of threats that were spoken before. And he is reminding Hezekiah that there is no earthly deliverance for him. There's nowhere for you to go, Hezekiah, to be delivered from me. And he, he declares once again, not even your God can deliver you. So notice the third thing that Hezekiah does that reveals his trust in the Lord. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Hezekiah prayed. When I say this is the third thing that Hezekiah did, please don't think of that chronologically. I'm just using this as a list. I don't think that he has avoided prayer up to this point. In fact, when it said earlier that the first thing he did was go into the house of the Lord, I assume that included in his time there, he was praying. Back up in verse four, Hezekiah's one request of Isaiah was, concerning this terrible news, please pray. But now the text highlights the faithfulness of Hezekiah to recognize his desperate need and to realize that Sennacherib is mostly correct. There is no hope for Judah. They cannot be spared from this great army. They have no ability to fight. Sennacherib was correct in all of his assessments except for one. He had correctly categorized Judah's cities and their armies and their fortified walls. He had correctly assumed that Hezekiah was weak and incapable of standing against him, but he made the most tragic mistake that any human can. He underestimated God. Your God can't deliver you. And God was up to that challenge. The question is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? One of the great evidences of your faith is whether or not a trial brings you to your knees. Now, when people talk to you about this in culture, they basically will say to you, well, I guess you've done everything possible. There's nothing left. So now you might as well try prayer. Well, that is the exact opposite of what I am saying. It might sound counterintuitive, but the more quickly you give up trying on your own strength, the stronger your faith actually is. Do not hear me saying with Paul McCartney, just let it be. Do not hear me just say, let go and let God. What I am saying is when you find yourself in times of trouble, right away drop to your knees, seeking the Lord's wisdom, because that's free. What does it say in James chapter 1? That he gives wisdom to all who ask without reproach. Go to the Lord for wisdom. The kicker of Hezekiah's prayer can be found in verse 20. He says, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all kingdoms of the earth might know that you alone are the Lord. Now notice that Hezekiah's prayer is not a man-centered prayer. It is not simply a call for deliverance for deliverance's sake. It is seeking the fame of God's name and the glory of the Lord. He desires that God would rise up and reveal himself. Do this, save us, so that all the kingdoms of the world will see you and know you and realize you're right and you're true. That he would defend his name by defending his promises to his people. Prayer is not just the thing you do when you run out of other things to do. Prayer is not what you do because you just decided, I'm trying, but ah, this is just my last, last option. Prayer is what you do because it is the most powerful thing that you can do. Notice how the Lord responds through Isaiah. Verse 21, 
Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Let's just pause for a second. Isaiah is going to spend the next eight verses declaring the downfall of Sennacherib. He sums it up in verses 28 through 29. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. God is going to end Sennacherib's violent attacks. He's going to crush him. But why will God do this? According to verse 21, God did this because Hezekiah prayed. So let's get the order of events right theologically in our mind. God, before he created anything, ordained all that would come to pass. That includes the fact that he ordained things like prayer. He ordained that Hezekiah would pray. Do you see what this means? This is one of the most joyful realities of the nature of prayer that exists. God loved us so much that he allows his children to be involved in the greatest events in the universe, even though they physically are incapable of doing things like that. You can affect what happens on this planet after your death by praying for things that will happen long in the future. You can affect what takes place on a world stage, even though none of us are mighty warriors, none of us are generals, none of us are politicians. You can affect what takes place on the world stage by prayer. Why? Because God has lovingly and graciously created a system whereby when we call out to him in ways that according to his will, that he has planned to use your prayers to make real change. Because you prayed, Hezekiah, because you called out to me, I will stop Sennacherib. Because you prayed like this, I will put my hook in his nose and I'm going to rip him to the side and return him to his own hometown. He is just a bulldog under my control. He actually hears our prayers. God actually carries out our requests when they align with his will. So brothers and sisters, prayer is not the last resort. Prayer is powerful and a trusting person prays. So we've seen the trouble brought forth by the Assyrians. We've seen the trust displayed by Hezekiah. Now let's consider the termination of God's enemy. God gives Hezekiah a promise. He promises that he will not allow Judah to be destroyed. And that promise is summed up in verse 32, where he says, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now jump down to verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now, here's the heart of the text. Why would God save these people? He does not say, for your sake, Hezekiah, or for the sake of these people in Judah. No, those people have all rebelled against him, sinned against him. Hezekiah has sinned against him. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, we see him turning his back on God and going to the Assyrians or to the Egyptians for help. This is problematic, Hezekiah. What he is declaring to them is not just because you guys are so great. That is the reason I will deliver you. No, the heart of the text is that the Lord will do these things for his own sake, he says, for his reputation, 
His name is on the line here. If God allows Judah to be eliminated from the earth, then all of his promises would fail. But he also does it for the sake of David. This is bizarre. Why David? He's dead. He is Hezekiah's great, great grandfather 14 generations earlier. It all boils down to the promises that were made to King David. It's not for David. David's already in the presence of the Lord at this moment. No, it's for the promises that he made to David. Remember when David had made promises to Jonathan? When Jonathan died, he carried out those promises to his son. Why? Because he made promises to his father. He's, God here is carrying out promises for the children of David, those who fall in that covenant. God is not merely saying that he had a particular fondness of David, but that he had covenanted with David that a greater king was coming, that Jesus was coming. Now, this seemingly insignificant war in the scope of world history, like if you were to ask people, what, what are the biggest wars that have ever taken place? What are the, the greatest battles? What are the most significant and important cultural and shifts, uh, uh, military shifts in history that have changed the scope of the planet? I bet nobody you ask would say that one time Sennacherib came down from Assyria and camped around the city of Jerusalem for a while. I don't think anybody would say that, but consider the fact, if this happens, monotheism is gone. All of Western civilization is gone. Most significantly, the Messiah would never come. Jesus would never be born. The promises of God would fail. So what has happened here is Judah has retreated back into one final hilltop fortress. Jerusalem was their last stronghold. If God doesn't step in, the gospel doesn't exist. So God is going to continue a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. He is going to bring salvation to his people through the judgment of sin. Verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. There are some times in the word of God that a statement, I look at it and say, I just wish we had a lot more detail than that. 185,000 of the world's greatest soldiers just don't wake up. Now, we don't know what this attack of the army of the Lord looked like, of this, of this great individual uh, captain of the army who comes out and fights against them, this angel that comes down and fights against this army. We don't know what it looked like. Most likely, there was no physical altercation of any kind. The Lord just snuffed them out without even effort. This was truly one of the turning points in world history. And the Assyrian king probably had no explanation for what happened. He just wakes up tries to wake up the members of his army and realizes most of them are no longer with me. Maybe they assumed that it was mass food poisoning. Maybe they considered the, the, the possibility this is just a, a plague. Maybe they thought this is a curse. Maybe they accurately attributed this disaster to the Lord. All we know is the outcome, verse 37, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Of course he did. What else is there to do for him? He no longer has an army. They are dead. All of the things that he was boasting in are now gone. He found that everything he thought was his strength has now been pulled away from him. His army could not sa save him. And as we see in a moment, his fortified cities and his walls could not save him. And as he was riding his chariot back toward Nineveh, I wonder if he thought, 
Well, at least I've still got my family. Verse 38. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't this amazing? After all the blustering about how the Lord could not save Judah, his God could not save him. As he is worshiping this idol, his own children enter the room and cut him down. Are you blustering against God in your life? Are you like Sennacherib, declaring that God can do nothing to me? Are you too proud to recognize that you are desperately in need of him? If you are an unbeliever, you must know that all of the things you're trusting in will fall. In the end, there is nothing for you but judgment. Unless, like Hezekiah, you come to the end of yourself and you turn to the Lord, turn to him and see that he is the only way of escape. He has made a way for people like Sennacherib and like you and like me to avoid the wrath that we have earned. He has made a path of salvation, the way of the cross. He has sent Jesus to bear the judgment that you and I have earned. You deserve to meet Sennacherib's end and much worse for all eternity. And so do I. But the free gift of God is eternal life, which is found in believing the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus on your behalf. So if you would like to know more about trusting in the Lord for your forgiveness of sins, if you are not a believer, please talk to me after the service and before you depart, because I want you to know him in a saving way. Brothers and sisters, what do you do in times of trouble? When I find myself in times of trouble, I trust the Lord who died for me. He transferred me to his kingdom, and now I'm free. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would please cause us to have a deeper trust in you, that we would view the world rightly, that we would recognize that even if the armies of Assyria or all the armies of the world or every person that we, we know and even those that we love turn against us, Lord, it is worth standing for you because you are good, you are faithful and you are kind. Lord, I think of all of the things people called out at the beginning of this service, reasons for us to be here, the fact that you have done so much for your people. Lord, help us to trust in you. Your track record is perfect. And Lord, you guarantee that you will carry us home. So Lord, I pray that as we depart today, that you would fill us with joy, fill us with peace, fill us with hope as we are grounded in trust on Jesus' name. Amen.